heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous peoples who need no repentance. This is the gospel of the Lord. So Lord, may you speak your wisdom through me and in me to hearts open to receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it surely is a good uh, experience to be here and a real privilege. I don't get to preach in church much these days. I was just saying to Stuart, suddenly in one week I have two sermons because I have one at school too on Friday. But it really is good to be here. And I, like Stuart, wish you all the most beautiful of mornings. We're very blessed to have Stuart here at our helm in this church because he has this beautiful generosity of pulpit. And so we are blessed by having many preachers from very different points of view coming to talk to us here. And that is probably because we are that church known for our relationships. And relationships are complex, aren't they? They really are. And so we come from different backgrounds, we come from different places, but here we draw together with our own theologies, with our own understandings, to listen to a menu of ideas and theories that we ingest or reject as suits who we are and where we are within our faith journey. Let's face it, you only have to listen to the aftermath of a controversial sports decision against two predominant teams to hear where people's passions lie. My lovely husband always seems to be the brunt of my examples, and I have his permission to share this with you today. He grew up in Scotland, and I don't know how many of you come from the United Kingdom, but in the early 50s and before that especially, Scotland was divided into the Protestants and into the Roman Catholics, kind of like that. Frank's father was a Catholic and his mother was a Presbyterian Protestant. And in those days, it was anathema for them to be married. And in fact, the Roman Catholic Church at the time never uh, accepted their marriage at all. But that's fine, you know, love prevails. But in the early 50s in Scotland, there were some more ramifications to that because you see the other national religion was football, soccer. (laughs) And if you were a Protestant, you supported Rangers. There was no question about it. And if you were a Catholic, you supported Celtic. And depending on which school you went to, if you went to a Protestant school or if you went to a Catholic school, you either had a school full of rangers or you had a school full of Celtic supporters. So what to do with the lad who had this Catholic father and Protestant mother and where to send him to school? Do you notice I've made rangers very little up there? That's because I value my Sunday afternoon. What to do with this little lad? So they sent him to a Protestant school. 
and he was the only Celtic supporter in the entire school, where football was the second religion. And he said it was really, really, really tough to be in a school where you were literally the odd man out in the midst of passionate, passionate people. Now, I'm sure that many of you will be able to relate to this in terms of your own faith backgrounds, how you've been formed in the faith, what might have happened in your lives, and that might be very different. And this is not an indictment on any religion, Catholic or otherwise. It is what it is. And our history and our faith and the way in which we are raised impacts us hugely and can sometimes cause us to have this baggage that we bring into any faith debate, into any biblical passage. Why am I telling you this? Well, today we are starting a new series on Paul's letters to Timothy, those two letters that he wrote, of which you heard the entire chapter one this morning. Thank you for listening to that. I was listening to the gospel and thinking, yeah, Paul was clearly a lost sheep, found at last the apostle Paul. But in these letters to Timothy, what I'm hoping to show you today is that even Paul brought his own individual baggage to what he wrote and how he wrote it, as we do each and every one of us to ours. I'm going to show um, a part from 1 Timothy chapter 2. I was very tempted to preach on this this morning, but... Stuart had said to me, will you just put Timothy into context? And so I maybe gratefully thought I'd let somebody else preach on that one. But just have a little read of this and see what resonates in you as you read these words. Yeah? Thank God I don't actually have to wrestle with that one today. Trying to relate ancient texts into contemporary context is not an easy task, and it's very difficult to be absolutely sure about what people meant in their writings of 2,000 years ago. So at best, we can only really surmise what is going on in the hearts of people's minds. I mean, if we were to bring Paul into our current context, would this maybe be what he meant? I don't know if you can read that, can you? Good old SpongeBob. I heard somebody saying recently that they had absolutely no time for Paul or for his writings, that he really, really had nothing relevant to say into our contemporary work. But I think that that is not entirely true. When we look at Paul, and here are two portraits of Paul by Rembrandt, we need to understand a little bit about his own personal journey, the conflicts that he experienced, of the huge transition that he had to make in his own faith journey. So let's just recap some of his background. First of all, he was probably born around the same time as Jesus, so he was of an age with Jesus. He was born to devout Jewish parents in Cilicia, in Tarsus, which was a Roman province. It's actually modern-day Turkey now. And later on in his life, he would use that um, to claim Roman citizenship in order to help himself out of a pickle 
and there are debates as to where and how he managed to attain that Roman citizenship. He spoke Greek in a world where the lingua franca was Greek, a legacy of Alexander the Great, and so the common language was Greek, although he obviously spoke Hebrew. He was very likely a tent maker. But importantly, he studied under a renowned Jewish rabbi called Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is spoken about outside of, of biblical texts as well. He's a renowned teacher of the Jewish law. And so essentially, Paul himself was a lawyer. He was, he was an interpreter of the ancient Jewish law. So he had a, lawyer, a, a lawyer's brain, a lawyer's heart. He was passionately zealous about the Torah, and he was passionately zealous about his faith. And we know this because, by his own admission, he actively persecuted Christians. How dare they mess with the faith? The law is the law. The faith is the faith. We can't deter from that. However, the transitional moment for Paul appeared where on his road to Damascus, he has this miraculous encounter with Christ. And in this flash, in this moment, he kind of sees the light. He hears Jesus say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that moment, however we might interpret it, led him to do some really deep studies on the Christian, what was the emerging Christian faith, known as the way then. And became known by his Roman name Paul because that helped his ministry and his evangelism. But he became such an ardent follower of Christ that he really changed the known world at that time. One of the most controversial, but also one of the most influential evangelists. He traveled widely on a number of missionary journeys, on one of which he met Timothy. He established many churches along the way. He suffered abuse, he was imprisoned, but he was resolute in his quest to spread the gospel and suffered, as he often said, for Christ. Thirteen of the 27 books in the New Testament are attributed to Paul. Thirteen, that's a lot. Although scholars are now saying that maybe only seven were directly written by Paul, others might have been dictated. The cause and place of his death is also widely disputed, so I'm not even going to unpack that now. But the key to his ministry was this conversion experience where all that he knew, all that he understood, all that sat comfortably within him was suddenly challenged. How often have we experienced times like that in our lives? He had to make this transition after 30 years. How does it affect us today when family members move away from the faith that we might have taught them or grown up in? When they declare themselves to have no faith or a different faith? It's a real jolting experience, especially for parents, isn't it? And I'm sure some of you might have had that experience. I chose the chapter of the first two letters, this first chapter of the first two letters, because it deals with Paul's relationship with Timothy, his relationship with Jesus, and some of his theology. So if we look 
at some of the theology of, Jesus, of Paul, we see the lawyer in him, that despite his transformation, despite bringing on his understanding of Christ, that everyone is equal, despite bringing on that understanding of loving one another as I have loved you, he yet has that lawyer's heart. You may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine. The latent Pharisee still comes out and mentions. Some people have deviated from these desiring to be teachers of the law. How dare they? Do they know how long it takes to become this person, to know your work? You can almost hear Paul say, conscious that that is my interpretation and others might find it different. He goes on here, the law is good if one uses it legitimately, but it's laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and the disobedient. And then Paul often has extreme language, extreme language. He's either very gentle or he's pretty harsh, you know. All of those of you who are fornicators out there, those killers of fathers and mothers, those perjurers and slave traders, that's who the law is for. If you do what you're meant to do, you're okay. You won't break the law. You won't need a lawyer. You'll be okay. You won't need anything more. Right at the end of Paul's letters, there's this beautiful little piece where he gets really cranky about Hymenaeus and Alexander who had traveled with him and then kind of moved away from him. And, <laughs> and he says to them, you know, I have handed them over to Satan. It's a bit like he's saying, oh, they can go to hell. Have a look at that. How often do we feel like that with people in our lives? They can go to hell. So when we read this theology, it's very often difficult to avoid that Pharisaic lawyer that is still there, residing within Paul. But also in that first chapter, we see something of Paul's relationship with Jesus and how it might resonate with us and ours. The time of his Damascus experience as I said earlier, started a time of deep personal introspection, reflection, study, and then the beginning of a very profound and powerful ministry as he went out and made such a difference in the world, huge difference. And I can imagine it must have been really, really hard. We see the recognition of his own sinfulness and of his own redemption, that nothing is beyond the, the love of Christ, that mercy is there. The grace is there all the time. It's there for the asking. And no matter how bad we are, you know, we, we, we know that, that, that um, Paul was an observer at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, encouraging it. Wow, causing the death of someone. And yet here he is, under God's grace again, in the, in the beautiful love of Christ that takes him on to the next step. Which brings us to Timothy, unless he's known about Timothy, except, sorry, I've gone, you've taken you the wrong way, um, except that Timothy was a young man when he met Paul, probably on the second missionary journey of the four that he made, and that Timothy just crept into the affection of Paul in a way that he became a mentor, Paul became a mentor to him. If we look a little bit at um, Timothy's 
background, he was born in Lystra, which was a Roman province of Galatia, to a Gentile, non-Jewish father and a Jewish mother, Eunice. Now Eunice and Timothy's grandmother, Lois, were ardent Jews, but they converted to this new way, to Christianity. So Timothy himself had been raised in a Jewish um, household to a time, we don't know when that time was, and then had become a Christian. So he also had this conversion type experience in his life. These two pictures that you see there are also um, paintings by Rembrandt. So he met Paul when he was quite young, but he also developed um, a mentoring relationship with Paul, a mentorship with Paul that spanned about 20 years. It was probably about eight to 10 years between the writings of the two letters of Timothy. And from we read, from what we read, here you can see, and it's again why I chose this first chapter, is you can see Paul relating or referring to Timothy as my child, my child on whom a prophecy was made, my child whom I can encourage. And you'll see this throughout the letters of Timothy. It's his greeting. Timothy eventually landed up in Ephesus, and he became the bishop of Ephesus. Um, and we are not quite sure what happened to him at the end. There are some reports that he got on the wrong side of, of pagans in the town and was killed quite violently. But again, that has not been, cannot be confirmed. And so this helps us to understand a little bit about Paul and about his conversion and about his transition and about his personality and that he, like us, brings our own baggage. And it's not always bad baggage. Sometimes it's good to have that stuff in our backpack as we come to faith. But we all bring that with us and it bleeds out in our personality, sometimes totally unconsciously, without us realizing that it's even happening. Uh, I know for myself that as I have grown and trans transitioned, my understanding of God is never in, in a male image. And so I will very, very seldom relate or refer to God as he. God for me is God, non-gender. But that doesn't stop me from, from listening to people who do refer to God as he uh, in whatever context. And Paul is the same. This comes out and bleeds through in us as we experience and learn more about our own faith. There is no doubt that both Timothy and Paul were influenced by their Jewish heritage. And Timothy himself was a product of that mixed faith religion. I've deliberately used these portraits by the 17th century Dutch painter Rembrandt who's well known. I'm sure some of you might have seen his paintings in various museums around the world. But Rembrandt was deeply, deeply attracted to biblical figures. And so he painted them very, very often. How many of us don't know that wonderful, famous painting of the return of the prodigal son that uh, Henri Nouwen has written about in books and a, little, a few, few years ago? It was very, very popular as a Bible study around the traps. But if Paul had a major conflict of faith and Timothy had to grapple with a Gentile Greek father and a Jewish-turned-Christian mother and grandmother... Rembrandt himself had to deal with, well, 
You see, Rembrandt had a Protestant father and a Roman Catholic mother. His father belonged to the Dutch Reformed Church in Holland, and his mother was a practicing Catholic at a time when Roman Catholics were not allowed to practice their faith um, in Holland. There is no evidence that Rembrandt had allegiance to any faith at all. There is some possibilities that scholars have written about, but the fact that he was drawn back again and again as an artist to these biblical stories seems to me to be a time of great reflection for him. How would he portray these figures if he didn't understand them theologically? What was the context of the grappling of his faith? And it was interesting when I was doing some background research, there are scholars who believe that in this particular painting of Paul, which I have uh, just emboldened on the face, it's actually a self-portrait of Rembrandt into Paul's um, portrait. And he's done that, as the scholar said, because of the conflict that he felt in his own life that resonated with the conflict of faith that Paul had in his. And so there was the self-portrait placed into that picture. Some of you might have seen it, actually, in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Now, the complexities of religious beliefs sometimes can hinder our relationships one with another. And I think the message that I'd really like to offer to you today is can we be open to one another? Because that's how we all learn and grow. Would this work? And I don't know if you can read that. Yes, perhaps. Would Paul write a letter to, like that to you today? <laughs> but it is for us about finding ways of growing our faith, of improving our faith, of understanding our faith a little bit better. And we can do that in this remarkable church in a number of different ways. We are called to be a church that is known for its relationships. But even more, can we grow our faith by getting into contact with one another a little more? We have the capacity to mentor each other as we encourage one another as Paul's to Timothy's every day. There are a plethora of Bible study groups. There are a coffee shop starting up somewhere. What about starting a coffee group, a regular coffee group, just to talk about your faith? We've spoken about the importance of our faith stories and journeys, and yet there's a reluctance in us to actually share those very often. But we can learn so much from one another. To listen to some blogs, listen to the sermon from Sunday. And can I end by saying tonight, as Bowen mentioned earlier, we have our Stillness in Action contemplative prayer group, which is also another wonderful way of listening to God in our hearts as we journey together. And so, Lord God, I just thank you for your beautiful presence with us, for the companionship for Jesus, and for your Holy Spirit that inspires and guides us now as Paul was inspired so many, many years ago. We thank you for the examples of Paul and Timothy who remind us that we are all human and you love each and every one of us just as we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.